Hello, America. Welcome to America's Healthcare Advocate Show, broadcasting coast to coast across the USA. 291 affiliates strong, thanks to all of you in our listening audience. Our producer today, Mr. Darren Wilhite. I'm your host, Kerry Hall. This is your show, America. Thank you for joining us and making us one of the most listened to talk shows in the United States. We appreciate all of you in the listening audience. If you want to follow me on Facebook, you can do that at americashealthcareadvocate.com. Also, all of our shows are posted on podcast platforms, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, iTunes, if, and our website, America's Healthcare careadvocate.com. Now, I get a lot of feedback from you on the podcast, so if you want to listen and send me a note, I'm happy to, to read whatever you've got to say, or go to the website and send me an email. You can always send me an email from the website, and I will get back to you once I receive the email. So this is your show. Again, we appreciate this, and what we try to do here is separate fact from fiction on the subject of health care. If you are looking for health insurance, you can always reach out to the lovely Joyce Thompson. If you are looking for Medicare, or individual health insurance at 877-385-2224. Or if you are looking for employer-sponsored health care, Susan Dendiger is a national expert. She can also help you at 877-385-2224. And once again, if you have questions for me, go to the website, americashealthcareadvocate.com. Send me an email. I get them from all over the country. I'm happy to answer and help you with anything I can. So today is going to be a very special show. I have back in studio with me Dr. Andrew Schlechter and joining him Dr. Aaron Curry from St. Luke's Healthcare System. Welcome to both of you. Welcome back, Dr. Schlechter. Thank you very much. I'm glad you're, to be you're back. You're going to be a pro at this after this show. Dr. Curry, thank you for coming in today. Thank you for having me. First of all, I want to say thank you to both these doctors. It was very difficult to get them scheduled. They are working. Dr. Schlechter is sitting here in his scrubs. He came right out of the ICU unit here to do the show with me today. This is an important broadcast, and here are the reasons why. The, the ICUs are full of folks right now that are that are COVID patients, a lot of whom are unvaccinated, et cetera. We're not going to talk about vax or unvax or any of that today, but we are going to talk about ICU units, and we're going to talk about the 4 million Americans that are admitted to these units every year, 19% of which do not survive. So I think it's important for you to understand what what happens once you're in these units, how to avoid that, and how to navigate this system. So a little bit about the doctors. Dr. Schlechter is a pulmonary and critical care specialist who practices at St. Luke's Hospital of Kansas City. He is the medical director of the Marion Block Neurosciences ICU and an assistant professor of medicine and anesthesiology at UMK School of Medicine. Dr. Aaron Curry is a specialist in supportive and palliative medicine, practicing at St. Luke's Hospital in Kansas City, an assistant professor at UMKC School of Medicine. She's the board-certified emergency medicine and hospice palliative care medicine and has a master's degree in health policy and bioethics from Loyola University. Two experts. We're very fortunate to have them. And I just want to say to both of you, and I said this before we came on the air, you know, I served in the military and and, and it was a very young man. I was a police officer in Washington, D.C. And I respect people that are willing to put their rear ends on the line every day. And what I know, yours is a different kind of doing that. But you're doing that, okay? This is not a fun time to be a doctor in an ICU unit. It's not a fun time to be a doctor in a hospital at all right now. So I think the American public needs to have a large vote of gratitude and thanks for what you all are doing and, and, and the care you're giving to people that are in critical need. I just wanted to say that. So, doctor, let's talk a little bit about 
what's going on in the ICU units, 4 million people a year. They're not all in there because of COVID. This is the, 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 the average number admitted. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on now, and then let's get into, with Dr. Curry, you know, navigating these systems of palliative care, ICU, and all the rest of it. Doctor? So thanks, Carrie. I think that's an excellent introduction. In America, and this is before the COVID pandemic, upwards one in five Americans will be in an ICU at the end of their life. And even more Americans will see an ICU within 30 to 90 days at the end of their life. So intensive care units and critical illness is part and parcel with the American end of life. And I think it's important to frame the context for our conversation that a lot of this has come from the advances in modern healthcare, our ability to support critically ill bodies with machines, dialysis machines, invasive monitoring, mechanical ventilation, a lot of the things that I believe COVID has made very well known in everyday's households are things that have been growing and building in our healthcare system for years. And so quite literally, compared to decades ago, we can keep patients alive for a whole lot longer related to critical illness and organ failure. And this, while amazing to be able to support patients and often get through critical illness, brings a lot of consternation and difficulties as families grapple with what we should, what we shouldn't do, when should we continue, when should we not. And so these decisions are born out of our ability to take care of patients in a way that we never could historically. So Dr. Curry, you're an expert in palliative care. Um, and bioethics as far as the end of life. Talk a little bit about that. Um, and, and it, you know, th- this is obviously a lot of you out there are chronologically challenged like me. I'm age 72. You know, a lot of you've got aging parents and grandparents. You just heard doctors say one in five are going to wind up in, in an ICU unit. That's important to understand because this is going to affect a lot of people across this country. Doctor, your thoughts? So I do want to say that there's a lot of misconception about palliative medicine and the business that I am in. Um, Whenever I'm invited to meet with a new patient and family, we start with um, the fact that we're here to help with pain, symptoms, and plans for people facing complicated medical situations. And there's never a place where things are more complicated than in the ICU. So that's kind of where we come into it. And as Dr. Schlachter was saying, you know, our job is to try to take the medical situation and then match people's values and goals to come up with the best possible plan we can in the context of the medical realities. And, and, and that's not always easy for people to understand when they're in this situation. You've got a family. You know, I went through this with my mother. I didn't have to go through it with my father, but I did go through it with my mother where she was in an ICU unit. Um, and when they tried to move her out of there, I, I resisted that because I didn't think she was going to get the kind of care that she needed. She passed. It didn't, it didn't make a lot of difference one way or another. But you're confronted with this situation, and you're trying to figure out what's the best thing to do. And it, so let's talk a little bit about what people need to know um, when they are confronted with this. Who, who, do, who should they turn to? Who should they listen to? And, and where should they look for advice on what is the best? Moms, I just had a person call me the other day. Mother's 95 years old. She's got pneumonia. She's refusing to stay in the hospital. Oh, boy, what do we do? Okay, so let's talk about that. So I think the most important thing there is to um, try to have a framework before you get into that situation, have to make those decisions. And that's where the idea of advanced care planning comes into place. Um, And there's a lot of different, you know, information and places you can go to help with advanced care planning. One thing that's really important is that studies have shown that only about 37% of Americans um, have advanced care planning documentation in place. And that for people who are in an ICU who are, um, I think, you know, elderly, um, 
after about about 50% of them end up having to need surrogate decision makers um, in the first 48 hours after they're admitted to the ICU. So, so, so there's a huge number of people here. You've only got 37% of the people. I happen to have all of that done uh, in a will and a trust but with our attorneys, but only 37%. That's not a good number, doctor. I mean, 63% of the people in this country haven't got a clue what's going to happen if they wind up and then who gets to make the decision. And then you've got family members, mm-hmm. want, one, one group wanting to go this way, another group wanting to go that way, maybe, okay, they can't come to a decision this is difficult, Dr. Schlechter. This is incredibly difficult, and if anyone has suffered with critical illness of themselves, of a loved one, you know just how stressful and strenuous and tired you are in dealing with that moment. And I would say it's really difficult in the entirety of healthcare to create relationships with patients and doctors and to create that quickly when someone's critically ill and then navigate these really difficult decisions is another facet that makes these goals of care, decision-making, and these discussions and decisions really difficult in the moment. And I think advanced care planning, one of the most amazing parts of this is that we're talking about these tough situations in a time when we're not faced up against the clock. Yeah. So, Dr. Corey, then it sounds to me like the message is do it in advance, Mm -hmm. okay? (laughs) Don't leave it in the lurch uh, and then wind up in the situation Dr. Schlechter just described, yes? Yeah. So, it it's really important to recognize they're not static documents and you'll need to update these things, but having someone who you trust to make decisions for you and letting them know what decisions you think you'd want in the future is the most important piece of that. Yeah, that that, that means do you want to be on a life support system? Do you want to be on a ventilator? How long are you willing to do that? If so, and if you're told the chances for recovery are not good, what do you want to do at that mm-hmm. point? And that's really what we're talking about, right? And I think the most important part of this is it's not what our loved ones want. It's what we as patients would choose if we could make that decision. And that's important to understand. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk a little bit more about advanced care and what that means and how you put it in place. Stay tuned. You're listening to America's Healthcare Advocate, broadcasting here on the HIA radio network, coast to coast across the USA. We'll be right back with more. The doctors are in the house. Welcome back. You're listening to America's Healthcare Advocate Show, broadcasting coast to coast across the fruited plain here on the HIA radio network. You can find out more about us by going to americashealthcareadvocate.com. That's our website. All the shows are posted up there. There are also videos up there and lots of other information. The website, again, is americashealthcareadvocate.com. You can also send me an email from there. My producer, the always perfect Mr. Darren Wilhite. We're happy to have in studio with us Dr. Andrew Schlachter and Dr. Aaron Corey from St. Luke's Healthcare System joining us here today to talk about the ICU units, what goes on, end-of-life care, palliative care, and all the things that come with that. Four million Americans are admitted to these ICU units every year. Dr. Schlachter mentioned that one in five people are going to wind up in ICU if you are chronologically challenged or a seasoned citizen, you know this is important information. If you've got a parent or grandparent that is aging, this is important information. This is why we're doing this, and this is why I really appreciate these extremely busy doctors. As I said, Dr. Schlachter is sitting here in his scrubs coming in here today to do this broadcast. So let's go right to this advanced care initiative. Dr. Corey, let's talk about what, how do you do it and what goes into it. 
So advanced care planning usually consists of uh, designating a healthcare proxy, so someone who will be able to make decisions in your stead if you're incapacitated, and then also an advanced directive form that lists in some way, shape, or form kind of what your values are, um, what you would constitute as an acceptable quality of life, and then potentially which things you may or may not want in terms of um, advanced interventions like CPR, intubation, dialysis, things like that. Okay, so does that also mean something like uh, being on a ventilator? Yes. For maybe you don't want to be on a ventilator or I'll, I'll, I'm willing to be on a ventilator for a certain amount of time. But after that, not. I had a brain tumor removed in 1985 and I did one of these for the first time then. I was a young man. But I made it very clear that if I came out of that and I was a turnip, <laughs> we were done. Okay, I had no intention of, of spending you know, my life as, as somebody else's problem. So th- these things are important. Where's the best place to get this done? So there's lots of different places where they can be done. Um, one would be like a primary care provider's office. If you're in the hospital facing some of these decisions, it's also a time when you can fill out advanced care planning documents. Um, but more so, it's about having those conversations about framing what your values are in okay, these so that's situations. very interesting because a lot of people, young people, uh, people with parents that are in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, this is not comfortable. Try to sit down. I, I, had, I had a listener call me the other day, told me he spent an hour and a half trying to find his mother who got in her car and started driving, and he had no idea where the hell she was. Now, she's got, obviously, dementia and, and some significant – but he said when we tried to – they had to take the keys away from her. Mm-hmm. She's refusing treatment. She's refusing to sit down and have conversation. That should have been done long before she got to this point. So it's critical that if even if it's uncomfortable – you better do it now because you're going to have an issue with it. At some point, you're going to have to deal with this in some form. Yes? Yes. Doctor? And while uncomfortable, these are not fun conversations to have. How important is it to do it in a situation when we're not up against the clock, when our loved ones are not critically ill, when these decisions do not need to be made at that moment? I can imagine while uncomfortable as it is, these conversations are easier when we're sitting around as a family at our house playing a board game or over a meal, talking about these decisions as a theoretical as opposed to my loved one is in the bed in front of me and the doctors are asking us right now what we need to do. And I also want to go back on Dr. Corey's comments and say that our advanced care planning, it's so important that we write down the things that are important to us as the patient. It is also important who we choose. And what I say very commonly is the things that we choose are only as important as the person that we choose to make decisions for us. And so quite literally, I can write down all the things that I know I want are important to me, but my surrogate decision maker is able to make whatever decisions they want once I'm incapacitated. So not only writing down what we want, but making sure that the person that we're asking to make that decision for us is going to be steadfast in honoring this. So give me an example, and, and that's critical, and, and I've, I've had some discussions with people that thought they had somebody that was going to do that, and it didn't quite work out that way, and it became a big mess. But let's talk about what goes into when you say things that I want. Explain that a little bit in more detail. So I think that that's really important, again, to talk about in the setting of critical illness, what kind of life support would we want or not want? Do I want to be on mechanical ventilation? God forbid I have severe coronavirus. If I have a brain tumor and I have surgery, do I want to be kept on machines if my kidneys fail and I'm not able to come off the machine or wake up from a mechanical ventilator? I think it's also really important, and we use these words commonly in the ICU, we think all the time about these decision-making being end-of-life death or living. Oftentimes it's about a road of recovery and it's about whether the juice is worth the squeeze. I've taken care of patients who we have told them that after a year, which will be very horrible in a long-term care facility, long-term breathing machines, tracheostomy, but we think if you give us a year 
You'll be back breathing on your own, living independently. Some people may choose and have in the past that the road to travel to recovery is unaligned with their quality of life. And I think, again, we should touch on this some more in detail, but critical illness is not a one juncture that we get over and move on. Ripples related to critical illness are long-lasting and change not only a patient's trajectory, but families and many, many other people can be markedly changed for the entirety of their life related to a singular episode of critical illness. Yeah, and it can change families and family relationships, right, Dr. Curry? So (laughs) just a quick illustration. What's it like dealing with a family that has this in place versus the family that doesn't? Is it chaos typically? So having a document that gives us sort of a reference to work from is incredibly helpful. Um, a lot of times in the ICU, we'll use this context of best case, worst case, most likely, which is based off a model that was developed at the University of Wisconsin. Okay. And it gives us sort of a way of exploring, um, you know, different ways that this situation might go and then helping match what we think could happen with a patient's values as they were stated in the patient's own words, hopefully, and then making sure that we have a person who is able to carry out those wishes for that person. So Dr. Selector mentioned for the possibility of recovery after year, which was kind of surprising to me that you would, that there would be an opportunity after that long of a period of time. But the point is that Dr. I assume was making was that, do you want to go through that for a year or are you going to be like a friend of mine whose father was diagnosed with a certain cancer and said, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I'm going to die at home. This is what I want to do. Actually, he died on his boat. Um, that's where he wanted to be. Okay. In Florida, if that's what he's going to do, that's what they were going to do. So he made a decision not to go through what's going to be a very painful chemotherapy process with not a great chance for the outcomes to be positive. And that's basically what we're saying here, right? And it's also really important to note that these documents only come into play if someone's unable to make decisions for themselves. So otherwise, I will sit at bedside with you with Dr. Schlachter and we'll talk to the patient about what they want in the context of what we can provide and what we think the future looks like. These documents are if you cannot make decisions for yourself any longer and they're there to help speak for you when you can't speak directly to us. So so before we go to break, Dr. The, the part about having somebody you can trust, how important is that? It's, it's incredibly important. Again, these documents only go into play when you yourself cannot make decisions. And it is a reference for what you would want your surrogate decision maker to make. And again, without having these conversations, what loving daughter or son or cousin wouldn't want to, as we think, make decisions that would lead to recovery? I think oftentimes as we deal with critical illness and decision making, we are trained as a society that yes means good and no means bad. And I challenge that. Sometimes I think the most loving answers are when we should be saying no. That's very interesting. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk a little bit more about we're – actually, we're going to dive into how you navigate the system. You heard Dr. Corey talk a little bit about it. You heard Dr. Schlachter talk a little bit about it. Let's talk about ICU. Let's talk about nursing home. Let's talk about palliative care. How does all that work? When we come back from the break, we're going to talk about that. Stay tuned. You're listening to America's Healthcare Advocate, broadcasting coast to coast across the USA. We'll be right back with more. Welcome 
Welcome back. You're listening to America's Healthcare Advocate Show, broadcasting coast to coast across the USA here on the HIA Radio Network. You can find out more about us by going to the website, americashealthcareadvocate.com. So you're listening to this. You think there's somebody you would like to have hear this. Rather than try to regurgitate everything we're saying here, go to the podcast platform, Spotify, TuneIn, SoundCloud, iTunes, Spreaker. It's up on every one of those platforms. They can play it on there, or you can go to our website. They're also posted on the website with the show description so you know which one you're looking for. But this, again, is a topic I think it's important for every family to understand. Like I said, going out, 37% of people in this country have a directive. That means the vast majority do not, and it can lead to all kinds of issues and problems for, for both the person that's the patient and for the family trying to deal with that particular issue. In studio with me, Dr. Andrew Schlachter and Dr. Aaron Curry. Um, very happy to have them here, uh, both of whom work in the ICU units and deal with these things every day. So we're fortunate to have them here and have their time to explain how all of this works. So l- let's talk a little bit about, you know, I want, people need to understand you don't really have an agenda here. You're trying to do what? So I think it's so important that everyone hears, and I say this in the ICU, uh, my my role, our role here is for advocacy. We want our patients and their families to understand and come to the table with knowledge. We have no uh, interest in changing people's minds, in wanting to do what is not important or important to families. I very commonly say we all come from different faiths and cultures and backgrounds. And as a younger doctor, I used to get really morally distressed when patients and their families would choose things that maybe I would not choose for myself or my loved ones. And I use a sort of silly analogy that I really think is important. I treat these conversations the same way a waiter or a waitress would take your order at a restaurant. You never have a waiter or a waitress say, I can't believe you ordered the chicken parm. Who wants that? And so it's not. It depends on the restaurant. There are some (laughs) where they should probably say that. And so it's not our job to make your decisions for you. It is our job to make sure we tell you what is on the menu. If you want to know what the chef's recommendation is, we're happy to give that too. But we are going to help facilitate whatever is important to you, whether that means doing a lot of things, not doing a lot of things. We just want to make sure that you're ordering appropriately and that you understand the menu well. So, Dr. Curry, you mentioned, you said off air, and I thought this is really well put, painting a picture. What did you mean by that? So my job as a supportive and palliative medicine specialist is to work with the ICU doctors and all the specialists involved in patient's care to try to paint the clearest picture possible about what the future looks like for a patient and for a family. So the decisions that they make are based on expectations that really are as aligned as possible as we can be with what we think reality is. So you said something in the last segment was interesting. You said... You talked about telling somebody we can, they can be in ICU, they could, they could be here or on care, uh, critical care for up to a year, and we think the outcome would, th- that there's a good chance they're going to do better, they're going to improve. Um, so I think that kind of surprises people to hear that, 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 not that you would say that, but that there are outcomes that, yes, you can be ill for a long period of time, and then you can come out. We, I just had a friend of mine who swore her mother was going to pass, and she was in ICU for four months. She's out, she's home, and she's back to normal. So talk a little bit about that. That, that, that There are paths toward recovery, and medicine had advanced to a point now where that's a lot different than it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. It certainly has, and I think it all, again, relates to the expectations and what an appropriate expectation of recovery is and whether that's aligned with a patient's wants or wishes. Very commonly, if we were going to draw a graph, most human beings would want to be healthy as they could possibly be until the day they die, and so they go straight down. 
what happens in the setting of critical illness is sometimes we get very sick and then get a little bit better and then the next shoe drops. And we get a little bit better and we stabilize and then we have another event. And so we have a stepwise decline. And so I think it's really important when we're talking about the decisions that we're making today, we're not just focusing on do we need dialysis today, do we need the breathing machine today. Well, what is a road of recovery going to look like? What are the possible obstacles? In a best-case scenario, are we going to get away without a urinary tract infection or a bed sore? Are we going to get off the ventilator? Are we going to finish with dialysis and have our kidneys recover? We have to lay the groundwork for the possibility that none of these things can happen or that all of them could and that the road to travel is equally important in patients' decisions to pursue care as it is in that moment to decide right now should we or shouldn't we. So, Dr. Curry, we, you know, we, we, there's a Stanford study that says 80% of Americans want to die at home. Palliative care uh, is changed a lot. I remember when Lori's mother passed, you know, we had the hospital people come to the house. They came every day and helped us with her issues, okay, clothing, bedding, bathing, whatever, okay. You, you know, talk about how people navigate from an ICU. Somebody has recovered, okay, or, the, or they're not going to recover, but they don't want to stay there and they don't want to pass at the hospital. They want to be home with their family. So talk a little bit. About how do they do that? How does all that work? And what's palliative care like in this country now? So palliative care is very distinctly separate from hospice. Um, And so the tagline usually is, you know, any stage at any age for someone who is dealing with serious illness. Um, And it's focused on managing pain and symptoms and promoting the best quality of life all the way through a disease process. For patients who are in the ICU, unfortunately, a lot of times we've reached a point where we can no longer really sustain them um, in a way that can give them a good quality of life. And for those patients... Uh, transitioning more towards a goal of comfort and kind of the the philosophy of hospice makes a lot of sense. And so, again, you know, my job is to paint that picture about what the future looks like. And if the future looks like a place where focusing on comfort is going to be best aligned with that patient's values, then we can help with that transition towards hospice and getting home if possible, or doing something like hospice care, end of life care in the hospital, especially in the ICU or in an inpatient hospice facility. So So there are three choices there. ICU hospice, which probably is the least desirable for people. If you ask someone mm-hmm. that question, that could answer it. Um, hospice facility where they are, they're totally focused on care, comfort, pain management, all that. And then home. How, how do you get from one to the other to the other? For instance, as I just said, 80% of the people in the Stanford study said, I want to die at home. But that's not reality. So let's talk about that. So that's part of the idea behind having advanced care planning not be static and the idea that as your medical conditions change, as new problems pop up, that you kind of redirect what your goals are and what your medical plan of care is. There are some patients who are in the hospital, in the ICU, and they recognize and we recognize as physicians that we think their their trajectory is leading them to a place where they may need to be innovated. They may need to go down this route and they can make that decision for themselves at the time that, you know, if it looks like I'm going to end up on a ventilator and I'll probably not be able to get go home afterwards and I need to go to a long-term care facility and that kind of you know, long recovery course with a lot of questions about how it's going to go, as Dr. Schlachter talked about, um, they can make the decision instead to say, hey, I'd rather go home if I can now and focus on quality. And so it really depends on someone's clinical condition at the time they make the decisions about focusing on comfort in terms of what we can do medically to support their goals. Interesting. You know, you said something also in the previous segment. Or actually, you said it we were on break. Because, um, you know, having the document in place doesn't guarantee you're going to get what you want. You said you gave an example of someone going against what was in the document, 
uh, not following what, what because the document wasn't done wasn't written correctly or left was how, explain that a little bit. So so I think we've we we have seen and experienced both sides of this coin, and I've and I'm going to give my opinion that one side can be beautiful and one side can be very difficult. We can have a condition in which a patient has written in their advanced care directives they say don't want some certain life support, a ventilator. Well, as soon as that patient is incapacitated and unable to make decisions, their loved one and surrogate decision maker is welcome to make any decision that they want, whether or not it differs from the advanced care plan. So that same patient who had written down, I don't want to be intubated, if they chose a family member who wanted them to be intubated after they can't make decisions, then they can make... They can override that. Most certainly. And on the contrary, and what I would call a more a beautiful, although sad experience, is I have seen so many loved ones and surrogate decision makers who feel comforted, who feel supported, and who feel um, protected in making what they believe are the loving decisions that their that their loved ones had made, and they are honoring their wishes. And so, again, this advanced care planning, you're only as good as the person you choose, but oftentimes that framework or that reference, as Dr. Khoury had said, allows for an unbelievable health in regards to the grieving process, in regards to moral distress over the medical decision-making that happens. My grandma knew that she didn't want a feeding tube. And so I feel so comforted in saying no thank you to the doctors when they offer the feeding tube because I know grandma said, no, I don't want that. As opposed to grandma doesn't want a feeding tube, but I want her to have one, and so we're going to do it. Yeah, that, 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 that is a situation that would not be good. I, mean, I, I, can't, I don't even want to imagine. If grandma doesn't want it, but we're going to go ahead and do it anyway because we think we know better than what grandma. So having that document in place and, and being specific, but critical to that is having somebody you really, that you trust with your life because you are trusting with your life how much ever of that life is left or the possibility of recovery or whatever the case may be. So that is extremely important that that be in place and, and, and be set up that way, yes? And then, yes, of course. And then also if I can back up a second uh, for Dr. Khoury, I think one of the things that we say in the ICU very commonly is that I call hospice the H word. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what hospice means. And I think... Um, one of the ways I describe hospice is a philosophy of care. When we come back from the break, we'll talk about that so we understand that philosophy of care. You're listening to America's Healthcare Advocate, broadcasting here on the HI Radio Network, coast to coast across the USA. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to America's Healthcare Advocate, broadcasting coast to coast across the USA. My producer, Mr. Darren Wilhite. I'm your host, Carrie Hall. In studio with me, Dr. Andrew Schlachter and Dr. Aaron Curry. Very happy to have them here today. Took time out of extremely busy schedules to do this broadcast. The idea here, as I say in a lot of these shows, is to educate you and give you information. Getting two doctors in here that specialize in this kind of care, ICU, hospice, end of life, all of it, I think is very, very important, and especially at this time when we have so many people in ICU units. So we're going to segue now and talk a little bit about hospice as a philosophy doctor and not as a place. So let's talk about that. So I very commonly say in the ICU in particular that that hospice, as I jokingly call the H word, is not a place. It is not a geography, but it is a philosophy. But people think that. Okay, there's a hospice facility over there in Chillicothe, Missouri. That's where we're going to go. And I, I oftentimes liken the 
practice of medicine today to what my grandfather had practiced. And my grandfather practiced medicine where he was trained that there is illness and I will treat it. And I will treat disease even if I know I can't fix it. A very classic example would be cancer. We'll keep treating cancer. We'll keep treating cancer. Oftentimes, at the consequence of side effects and illness, but we treat because we were trained as a healthcare force that the only thing we have is to combat disease. So about 20 or so, a little bit more than 20 years ago, comes the idea or the philosophy of comfort care, hospice care, palliative care, supportive care. And this is a field that I feel very passionate about with Dr. Khoury in that what we want to do is we want to take care of humans. We want to match medical care with humanity. We want to wave a white flag sometimes at the things that we know that we can't fix. And hospice is not do not care. It is not do not treat. It is, in fact, the exact opposite. It is focus all of our intense resources and our efforts on things that we think matter at this stage of our lives. As Dr. Khoury had said, quality of life. What is important to us as human beings, being on the boat or being in an ICU bed? Right. And so, again, we can perform this philosophy of care anywhere in an ICU, at home, at your loved one's home, in an inpatient hospice facility, in a hospital bed. This is a philosophy of care in which we are maximizing quality of life and um, minimizing treating a disease that we think we cannot treat anymore or that treatment leads to more symptoms than it's worth. That's interesting. I, I, th- I've never really viewed it that way. I've always kind of looked at it as the place, just like, just like, you know, like St. Luke's has one. It's right over there off Broadway or Main. I can't remember where it is. But yet you, you always think of it, and, and it's not that. It's something completely different, right, Dr. Curry? Absolutely. And especially in terms of like ICU care, um, looking at the idea of not ever withdrawing care, because a lot of times people use that kind of terminology, oh, they're on the life, they're on a ventilator, we're going to withdraw. Um, it's more a question of transitioning to a goal of comfort, to sort of changing what the goals are. So we never stop caring for people, no matter what we can do. Um, we can always take care of symptoms. We can always take care of pain. We can always see that person as a human being and try to treat them the way that we would want our loved ones treated. So yeah, it it kind of comes back to the, to your to your first statement, both of you, and both in the other segments and here as well, is this is when when we get to this point, it's about comfort, it's about pain control, it's about those kinds of things, as opposed to um, not letting that happen and keep trying to treat it when when you're not, it's not going to work. Okay, yes. Yeah, our job as medical professionals is to try to restore health where we can and to recognize when we can't restore health to a level we can, you know, reach someone's acceptable quality of life. And so if we cannot heal someone or get someone back to a place where their organs can take over doing what we're doing for them, then we need to question what our objectives are and make sure that we're doing what that patient would want us to do for them. We we commonly bottleneck hospice care and end-of-life care and comfort care together as pain and and nausea and anxiety, work of breathing. Those are, of course, important aspects. Uh, But I'd love to give a little plug to an intensivist, a famous intensivist in a book that he wrote pretty recently, Wes Ely, Dr. Wes Ely, in a book called Every Deep Drawn Breath. And he is a champion of trying to bring humanity back into healthcare and humanity into the ICU and to end of life in particular. Of course, it's important to treat symptoms, but is it important that we get a spouse of 50 years to be in a bedside? Is it important, say, for a, uh, a monk to have his team come in to do appropriate religious activities, for someone to have their 
dog come and cuddle with them. We want to, of now, course. Those, I guess that's something I never would have thought of until you just said all of that. We, okay? we, we want to match. We want to match the the end of someone's life with the rest of their life, treating them as a human being and as a person. All too often in healthcare and in the pandemic right now, there's so much depersonalization. In an ICU, it's this one's on a ventilator and this one's on dialysis. And and just like Dr. Corey said, you are never allowed in my ICU to say withdraw care because I'm never going to stop caring. We can sometimes have a conversation over withdrawing life support, but I'm never going to stop caring for my patients and taking care of them. And I think that that involves their medical care, but treating them as humans as we get to this stage, everyone, everyone reaches a stage of the end of life. Dr. Corey and I, and I know you're a veteran, I thank you for your service. I, I think Dr. Corey and I have probably seen more patients die than the average U.S. soldier ever I can't ever even will. imagine. I, 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 can, I cannot and, imagine. And the truth of the matter is, having seen death every day, I'm open and honest in sharing with all of you. I'm terrified of my own mortality, of the mortality of my loved ones. But I know how very important it is for me to take care of every patient the way I want someone to take care of me and my loved ones when it's my turn. And that includes during critical illness or at the time of the end of my life or my loved one's life. Dr. Curry? And I just wanted to say, you know, as a palliative medicine provider, one of the best things I get to do is work with an interdisciplinary team. So I work with social workers and I work with chaplains. um, I work with nurses. And the whole idea is to treat the whole person. So their physical pain, any, you know, psychosocial or psychological symptoms that they're having, and also existential pain. So we make sure that spiritually people are taken care of, that physically they're taken care of, that all of their needs as a total person are being met to the best of our ability. I want to thank both of you for doing this today. I know, like I said, the getting you in here was hell because of your schedules, but we got you in. And you're looking at your watch, probably heading back to the hospital. But uh, it, I really appreciate your taking time. You know, we try to do shows like this to educate you and inform you. But I hope you heard these two doctors talk about how they personally are committed to what they do. I said this at the beginning of the show. You know, I don't think we have enough appreciation in this country for what these kinds of professionals are doing uh, in in the ICU units, in the hospitals are taking care of us now and taking care of our loved ones. I hope you learned something from this today. I certainly did. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I leave you with this thought from Dr. Martin Luther King. Americans must learn to live together as brothers and sisters or we will surely perish together as fools. Truer words were never spoken. Thank you for listening to America's Healthcare Advocate, broadcasting here on the HIA Radio Network, coast to coast across the USA. Goodbye, America. (laughs) 